Thank you everyone for coming. Uh, we're going to get started. Start by calling. Okay, hi everybody. Nice to see you all. I'm David Foreman, and thanks for coming. Um, okay, so uh, there's a couple different things I can do with you guys today related to uh, the Miguel. One of the great things about coming up with topics for these things is you can actually do two or three different talks under the same subject, depending on what you guys have already heard. So, um, just quick show of hands, I don't want to bore anybody by um, subjecting to something that you've already heard. Um, at Aleph Beta, we have a bunch of uh, we have a bunch of Megillah courses. Uh, we put out one this year, which we released just about a week ago. Uh, and if you folks have not seen that yet, I'll talk about it with you, give you a live version of it, and. Um, um, and we'll do that. But it would help to know if any of you guys have seen that all the way through. So you've seen the new course. The new course is on the Shloss, Manas, and Matanas right? And you've kind of gone through the whole thing. You can just raise your hand and let me know. Okay. One person. <laughs> okay, and that's it? Looks like that's it. All right, so what I'll do is, is uh, I'll kind of go through that course, but in the interest of our one person here who heard it, I'm just going to that the bad thing. And I'll try to elaborate a little bit more uh, so that you'll get some new stuff which doesn't exist in the course. So I'll talk a little bit quicker than I otherwise would and put in some uh, stuff that, uh, that I've come up with since then. Um, let me show you then a different screen. Bring you into the Megillah over here. Um, does anyone know computers well? How do you zoom in on text. Anyone know this? Control plus. Control plus. Ah, magic. Okay. All right, does that, what, can you guys see that more or less? Yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe a little bit larger. Okay, fantastic. Sort of 
hard to figure that out in the sense of what exactly is it about that is so foreign? Right? You can sort of imagine a gift giving ritual being part of any Jewish celebration, uh, whether it's Pesach, whether it's Sukkot. It doesn't seem like it's something very particular to, uh, to uh, the story of the New Gillen itself. Um, it's not like avoiding Tomates on Pesach, which is very Pesach thing. It's not like sitting in a sukkah, right, which is very sukkah thing, right? If you had to kind of just think about sending gifts, you can send these gifts anytime you're happy. There's nothing Purim like about it, right? It doesn't relate to the story, right? Or does it? If we can find how these events, the Shlach Hanukkah Yadam, actually relate to the story, we might actually get a new perspective of what it means to do these things. So when you run around all day on Purim Day giving the Shlach Hanukkah to everybody, right? what should you be thinking? What's it, you know, what's it all about? Um, and I want to sort of explore that with you. Uh, and the theory that I, that I have is that if you look carefully at the Megillah, you will actually find antecedents to these two practices in the Megillah itself. In order to find these antecedents, what I want to do with you is play one of my favorite games, and the game goes like this, where we are going to Okay, we're going to go and take a look at the language of the text and see how the language of the text might point us to a hidden episode of Let's Start with Mishlach Matos. The language from Mishlach Matos appears first in chapter 9. Put it up on the screen for you if I can find it over here. Right, here's our verse. Where we hear about Mishloch Manos Ishlareyehu right over here. Notice that before we hear about that, we hear about something else. We hear about a month in which Yagon turns to Simcha, in which Abel turns to Yom Tov. <coughs> How do you translate the word Yagon? Simcha is easy. Simcha is just happiness, garden variety happiness. But Yagon isn't exactly garden variety sadness, right? Yagon is really English. It's a very particular kind of sadness. English. Abel the Yom Abel, of course, means morning. Two kinds of ways of construing the particular sadness of the genocidal decree. It provoked us to two things, to mourn, Abel, and also provoked us to feel English, right? Younger. But I also want to argue to you that perhaps in this passage that talks about Mishloch Manus and Matanus of Yom, and also talks about two flips, the flip from Yoga to Simcha and from Abel to Yom. I want to suggest a possibility. The possibility that the, the two flips mentioned in this passage correspond to the two practices here. The practice of Mishloch Manos and the practice of Manos of Yonah correspond to the flip from Yonah to Simcha and the flip from Evel to Yonah. Moreover, I want to suggest also that each of these flips actually happened twice. The one that we're aware of, the one that's most obvious, is the national flip, which is to say, when 
It was disastrous. When we were all going to die, we felt anguish. We all felt in mourning, and things got better. But I want to suggest that the hidden instance of Mishloach, Moses, and in the Megillah actually takes us back to an earlier flip, long before the nation experienced the flip from Abel to Yomko, from Yomko to Simcha. There were particular people, individuals, in their own private lives who experienced what the nation would experience. And if we can find that, we can also find our first hidden example of Mishloach, Moses, and Matanah, in order to see that, let's look at the words. The words for Mishloach Manos are Mishloach Manos Ishlere Egu, Matanos Lavionin. When you look at that phrase, we're going to look at three parts of the phrase. Manos, part one, Ish, part two, and Re'egu, part three. Let's start with Manos. The word Manos gets portions of foodstuffs that appear over here in the Megillah. Does that word ever appear in the story of Megillah? The story of Purim? Do we ever have an example of the word Mano? Three folks for correct answer. A lot of people have this farm set before. Right? It's the least you could do. Um, <laughs> no honorary for this, but we can at least hear about three folks. Okay, so, right? Mano. Any Mano? All right, let's, let's start with Re'ehu. Any Re'ehu? Are there any Re'ah in the Megillah? Aside from Yishlachmanus Ishla Re'ehu, does the word Re'ah ever appear in any shape or form in the Megillah? Scour your memory of the Megillah. Anybody? Over there, I hear some language. All right, let's start with each. Yishlachmanus Ishla Re'ehu. Anybody get mentioned as Ish? Chapter 2, let me show it to you. Anybody know where? By the way, if I ask you questions, you are allowed to answer. Okay, that's the way it works around here. Okay, I am actually not being rhetorical. Um, so let's see if we can find it over here. Um, here we go. There, you yeah, got it there? There it is, right there. See, here's the puzzle. You see that? Right over there on the right hand side. This is one of these verses that you just don't remember in the Miguel. It's like a throwaway verse, right? It's not one of the famous verses. It's this little tucked away trivia verse where when Esther was in the palace, when she got her perfume, she got these manas, right? Right? Hegai, who's the head of all of the maidens in the palace, Hegai actually delivers Tamrukeha, which means her perfume, Ben Manoteha. But the interesting thing about this 
is that if you look back in the rules for the beauty contest, you'll find that what were the women supposed to get? They were all supposed to get something from the palace, but what were they supposed to get? Anyone remember? What did the palace make sure that everybody got? Whatever they wanted. Yeah, which is? But not some hungry they had. Which means every lucky maiden got lots of perfumes, right? Enough perfumes to spend a six months marinating in them. Six months marinating in Chevron or six months marinating, right? They're like, great, all the perfume you want. Not much in terms of food, but you've got all the perfumes that you could want. Now, notice that it only mentions that everybody got perfumes, but when Esther got her perfume, she actually got something else too. She got these monos. Nobody else got them. She got monos. Fascinating. Could this be an instance? The only time you ever have monos. Could this be an instance of Mishloach monos? Mishloach. Let's talk about Rea. Where does the word Rea ever appear in the Megillah? Turns out the word Rea also appears once and once only in the story of Megillah. Let me give this to you one last time. Last chance for the single occurrence of Rea in the Megillah. Anybody know where? There it is. Give that man a free coat. Sign him up. Okay? So, that is at the end of chapter 1. Right before this. Let me show you the end of chapter 1. End of chapter 1, right over here. This is Mabuchan's advice. Imalam al-Tov. If it pleases the king. The king should do the following. Vashti did not come before the queen, before the king, but Malfuta Yitain Hamelach, let the king give her queenship, Lira Uta Hatavamina, to her Rea, to her friend, to her colleague, to her fellow, that is greater than she. The winner of the beauty contest will be this Rea, who is going to get Vashti's crown. Now, in chapter one, we don't know who that person is. But, of course, later on in the beginning, we do find out who that person is. Who becomes the Rea? It's Esther. Guys, got to be better on the answer question. <laughs> Who becomes the Rea? Esther. Much better. Okay, but with a little more enthusiasm. Okay, <laughs> Esther becomes the Rea, right? So it is, right? Esther becomes the Rea. So just think about how coincidental this is. You have the word Rea appearing once in the story of Miguel. You have the word Mana appearing once in the story of Miguel. And lo and behold, they go together. Because it just so happens that the girl who gets the mana in chapter 2 from Haggai just happens to be the Rhea who becomes queen. So maybe she was the first recipient of Mishloch Manos Ishlareyu. Which, if true, would give you an insight into the scent who the sender might be in chapter 2. When Esther received those mysterious mana from Haggai, the question is, was a guy really the sender of the mono? Or was he perhaps just an intermediary with another anonymous sender behind them? Who would that sender be? Ish. Mishloach Manos Ish Who is Ish? Mordechai. is Ish. Right? In which case, it's possible that in chapter 9, when we hear about Mishloach Manos Ish we're hearing a veiled reference, we're hearing about a mitzvah, but the language of the mitzvah, if you connect the dots, leads you to make a conclusion about a hidden act in chapter 2. When Esther was in the palace, the king's harem, 
Mordechai slipped her mother, right, these food stuff, these little chocolate chip cookies, through the, the good offices of Hagar. Right? Okay. Now, if we stop now, and I left, and send you guys back to the farm sale, and somebody asks you, so, how the farm sales go? And you say, oh, it was fine. I went, I heard this talk. Foreman had some crazy theory about the Shlach Mana. And they say, oh, what's the theory? He thinks that there's this evidence that in chapter 2 that Mordechai actually sent these Mana to Esther. And then, you know, you detail the evidence. The person says, oh, that's very exciting. So what? Why does this matter? How does this change your view of the Miguel? You would have no idea how this changes you. you right? You'd be able to win a trivia pursuit contest yeah, on the Megillah, right? You could find the hidden Mishloach Manav early in the Megillah, but you'd have no idea why this would actually matter, why anyone would care. So what I want to do with you now is try to explore why we would care. Why does this matter? Because it sounds like it matters. Here's why it sounds like it matters. Because this is how Mordecai and Esther chose to develop the mitzvah sayom of Purim, right? They could have done anything. Think about it. They could have said, here's how we're going to memorialize Purim. We're all going to make paper mache models of the Persian palace. That would have been very Purim-like. They could have said, we're all going to burn Haman in effigy. That would have been very vivid. But no, instead, the way we all celebrate Purim is by giving Yishloch Manuk, which means, if this theory is correct, emulating this gift in chapter 2. This little trivial chocolate chip cookie gift. That's what it's all about. This must be central to the idea of Purim, that episode. Otherwise, why make that what it's all about? How is that central? So to do that, what I want to do with you now is to actually go through the story that we go and to read it in a slightly different way than we normally read. The way I want to read the Megillah with you is not as a reader, but as a participant. So normally in 2018, you read the Megillah, right, and you're divorced from the event. But what I want you to do now is to read something surrounding this event in chapter 2, but to read it as if you were a participant. What would it have been like to have experienced the events that the Megillah is describing as a participant, as Mordecai experienced them, or as Esther experienced them? Okay, so let's actually go into the text and see what would have been like. Let's start from our introduction to Mordechai. Mordechai gets introduced about five verses into chapter two. Look at the first four verses of chapter two. How would you summarize these verses? What are they basically about? Right before you get to Ishi, Hudi, Hayo, and Shishan, just kind of skim through those for five seconds and tell me what's the main topic of the beginning of chapter two? Anybody? Replacing the queen. Replacing the queen. How are we going to do it? I know. We're going to have a beauty contest. So we've got all the rules for the beauty contest for the first five verses, for the first four verses of chapter five. And for the fifth verse, each of the eye of the There was a man in Shushan, his name was Morafai, and he already shooting the Kish, Kish, you mean. How's that anyway to introduce your hero? As a footnote to the rules of the beauty contest, I mean, if you were writing this as like an essay or something, right? And you, you gave this in, Comp 101, in Yeshiva University or Stern College, right? What would your professor say if this is how you introduced your hero? 
where's the transition? It's coming out of nowhere. I have no idea. This is how you introduce your hero. If you had started with I would understand that. But what are you introducing here in the middle of the beauty contest for? Right? Was a reasonable question? Father, you know, it's a reasonable question, right? Anyway, so, but this is how we introduce more of All right, let's come back to that question. So now we're in, we, we've got introduction of Mordechai. He's this man, Ish Yehudi, also a little strange. Ish Yehudi, Ish Yemini, almost as if, and most people don't get introduced that way. We, we figure out their gender. You know what I mean? You don't say, Ish Aaron. You know, well, he was a guy. We know who Aaron was. He was the brother of Moshe. You figure it out. You know, you know, we don't hear Isha Esther. That's not how she gets introduced. It's strange to sort of introduce Mordechai that way, as if we're sort of harping upon his, his manness. Well, let's look at the next verse. Look at the word that appears over and over again in this passage. What word do you hear over and over again in this passage? Exile. Exile. Mordechai goes through an exile experience. <laughs> what would that mean? What would it be like to be Mordechai at this moment? Right? Like, describe the scene. Just like, imagine yourself, you are Mordechai. And this is actually happening to you. What would that actually be like? Anybody? Depressing. Painful. Painful. Depressing. What's happening around you? Destruction. Destruction. Right? Destruction. What does that actually mean? Imagine you went into exile now from Washington House. Right? Imagine an invading Russian army, right? Comes in, and the Russian bots are not on Facebook anymore, okay? The, there's boots on the ground, and there's the collapse of all the order in the streets, and the, the traffic lights aren't working anymore, and there's no YU security, and people are being sold as slaves, and there's bodies in the streets, and you're headed out to uh, occupy Alberta in Canada, you know, for an unknown future. That's what exile is, right? It's not a happy thing. It's terrifying. People are dying. People are being sold as slaves. Everything is over. Your life is over. And now, if you're mortified, or if you're anybody experiencing that, as you're tromping down the dusty road into exile, what are your thoughts going? What is your number one priority? What's your number one priority? What's anyone's number one priority? Survival. 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 And that's hierarchy of needs. You're at the bottom, right? It's not about self-actualization anymore. It's not about love, right? It's about survival. That's what your thoughts go to. But look at the next verse. What does the next verse paint you a picture of? By he omain as Hadassah. In that picture, he took care of this girl, Hadassah. He Esther, bat dodo, this cousin of his. He ain la avaim, because she didn't have a mother and a father. Banari fator v'tavad mar'eh, and she was very beautiful. Upon the death of her father and her mother, Fascinating. So here Mordechai is. He's at
that's my cousin. That's, that's Esther. And in a split second, you have a choice in front of you. Right? What's your choice? What do you do? Do you take her in? Do you adopt her? Not as easy to survive. There's a little eight-year-old clinging to you, right? It, and there's a responsibility that comes with that. Or you say, look, life is hard. Exile is tough. People are dying. That's just the way it goes. A man's got to worry about his own survival. I have a coatman. That's not what Mordecai does. Mordecai takes her in. And when he takes her in, there's a strange word used to describe him taking her in. But he omain et tadasa. What does the word omain really mean? Like he omain et tadasa. How did he take care of her? So omain seems to be related to the word amain or emunah. It seems to have the connotations of trustworthiness. The word actually appears once in Chumash, maybe more, but once it comes to mind for me, in Parshas uh, Losa, if I'm not mistaken, where Moshe, kind of at the end of his rope, is complaining to God, and Moshe says, Did I give birth to it? Did I conceive this nation? Did I give birth to it, God? That you should say to me, You should say to me, Hold this child in your bosom. The way an omate, an omate would hold a suckling child. What's an omate? A nurse, right? A wet nurse. Somebody who's not biologically the mother of the child, but somebody who nurses the child. That's the word that Miguel uses now for Mordecai. A remarkable turn of events, wouldn't you say, for a guy who's described as Mr. Each. Right? You describe him and his masculinity stands out, and all of a sudden, he becomes the most feminine person imaginable. He's Mr. Omen. He's like nursing this child. Leading, by the way, the Medrash to say what it says in the individual way that the Medrash says it. Medrash says, miraculously, he was actually able to nurse her. Now, whether you take that Medrash literally or not, the Medrash is picking up on the stark contrast between Ish Yehudi and by Yi Omen as Hadassah. He's taking care of her in a way that only a mother could, because Ein La Abba'in. If she's going to be his bat, if she's going to be like a daughter, it's not enough just to be like a father to her. I have to be like a mother to her. I have to replace her whole family. And this is Mordecai. But if that's the case, if you look at this verse carefully, there's something here that doesn't belong. Read this verse again and tell me what doesn't belong in this verse. What not only that doesn't belong, but actually, if you really think about it, it's even a little offensive. It seems a little offensive. Like, what's this even doing here? Read it again. What's the problem? Why am I hearing that she's drop-dead gorgeous? Do I really need to hear that now? What is the unsettling implication of mentioning how drop-dead gorgeous she is in the middle of this puzzle? Is that why he took her in? And if she wasn't on the cover of Team Vogue, then he doesn't take her in? But that doesn't sound very nice, right? I mean, what is going on? Why in this puzzle are you emphasizing her outstanding beauty? Right? It's just a weird thing. What's the answer to that question? He 
Okay, the answer would seem to be, this gets back to the general context of these verses. What is the larger context here? Saving Jesus. This gets back to the question of why Mordecai's even introduced this way. Right? What's this chapter really about? It's about the beauty the beauty contest hangs over the whole chapter. It's actually the context for the introduction of our hero, which explains what Esther's beauty is doing here. In other words, at this moment, just as there is a note of hope for this girl Esther, just as there's this possibility that her life could return to a semblance of normalcy, when Mordecai scoops her up off the street, dries her tears, and takes her in with her doll off the dusty road, even at that moment, the text gives you a note of foreboding, which is, She was very beautiful, and there was a beauty contest. Which means what? And now again, you have to read it not as a reader in 2018, you have to read it as a participant. What would it be like at the time, right? In 2018, if you think about a beauty contest, and you're a girl who's eight years old, and it's time to dress up, you think, oh, wow, could I be Esther? I could dress up in a beauty contest. I can wear my, my leotard with my, my, my butterfly wings, and I can wear my, my tinsel crown and my cellophane scepter. And I bet I could win the beauty contest. Beauty contests are so exciting. Pick me, pick me, pick me. But if it's 400 BC and the actual beauty contest is happening, how excited would you be to be one of the 10,000 women drafted into the king's harem in the beauty contest? Not so excited. Why would you not be so excited? What happens the night you get drafted? What happens to you when you get drafted into the beauty contest? You don't have a family. The problem is, your chances of becoming queen, even if you consider that desirable, is one in 10,000, right? Most likely, what happens to you? See, the problem with harems, right, is that once you enter them, you don't exit. There's, it's a one-way street harem, right? That's the way it was in the Persian harem. That's the way it was in the Chinese harem. That's the way it always was with King's harem. The 10,000 women, the night they get drafted into the harem is the first night of the end of their lives. You don't leave. You're just an object of beauty that's moldering away in this dark harem. Everything you had, everything you knew is gone. And so here's this moment of foreboding. Esther's beauty is actually her Achilles. It's her vulnerability. It means she might get chosen, which is exactly what happens in the next verse. The next verse says, Batilakach Esther al Hamalach. And if you look at those words carefully, Batilakach Esther al Hamalach, you'll find that they play off two words in the previous verse. Which two words? Batilakach Esther al Hamalach. Mordechai that's word number one. Mordechai Lekacha lo There's word number two. Mordechai lovingly takes this girl in as if he's his own daughter, but then she gets taken 
one more time, but taken in a passive way, such that you don't even know who the taker was. The storm troopers come in the middle of the night and take her not as a duck, take her el take her into the harem, into the house of the king. And all of a sudden, she's no longer a lovingly doted upon as a bat, but she's now just this thing. She's now just part of the household, and part of the household of the king. And now, if you think about that moment, and ask yourself, what was that moment like from Esther's perspective? What was that moment like from Mordecai's perspective? Let's just play it out. From Esther's perspective, what's the moment like? What would it feel like as that first night in the harem? You don't know anyone. When it begins to sink upon you that this is your new reality, that you'll never leave, what do you feel? Anguish. There's that word. That's the first moment of yoga. That's the first moment of anguish. Long before a nation felt anguish, this is the moment that Esther feels anguish. Her life is over. Now I'll take Mordecai's perspective. What's it like to be mortified? To have taken Esther in, to lovingly nurtured her, and then one night, about 10 o'clock, you left the house to go pick up some milk at the Makolet, and you come back, and you knock on the door, and there's no answer. And you kick down the door, and you scream Esther, and there's no answer, and all you see is crumpled sheets in a room, and you realize the stormtroopers are here, and they took her, right? And now, you begin to reflect upon that. You realize that she's gone, and that she's not coming back. What do you feel? Morning, Abel. Morning, this right now, simultaneously, is the first moment, the moment that you've taken, of Yogan and Abel. But Yogan and Abel, not for a community, not because of a genocide. Yogan and Abel for two people. Yogan for Esther. Abel, mourning for Mordecai. After the guilt dissipates, why did I leave? I knew she was vulnerable. And then the mourning sets in, and he's just sitting there mourning. And it's fascinating that a couple verses later, we hear... Right? Every single day, Mordechai would go and he would pace in front of the barbed wire, in front of the harem. And he would just pace back and forth there. And here you have to read without knowing the end. Right? If this is all you knew, and you were Mordechai's friend, and kind of a volunteer for Mordechai's friend, only Mordechai. What's your name? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So if you think, so I'm mortified, and it's like, you know, a week goes by, and I'm casing in front of the barbed wire and the harem. And then a month goes by, and I'm casing in front of the barbed wire and the harem, and Yosef's my friend, and two months go by, I'm still casing, and Yosef starts to worry about me, because, you know, I, I landed on my feet after the whole exile thing, and I, I, had, I was trained, you know, I was an accountant, and it was bad, the whole exile thing, but managed to land this job, and young in Rubicam, and got this, uh, and, and the Shushan, you know, uh, uh, the Shushan uh, division of the, of, the, of the company, and then all of a sudden I hand them back to work, you know, I just go, and I pace back and forth, back and forth, and it's been three months now, and finally Yosef decides it's time for a little talk with Mordecai. So Yosef comes up and finds him outside those gates, just pacing back and forth. Yosef, you put your arm around Yosef's, around Mordecai's shoulder, and what do you say to him? Yeah, get up. 
say, look, you know, man, it's time to move on, right? Like, there's a time. There's a time to let go. Mourning is about letting go. There's, there's Shiva. The Shiva is not about the Shloshim. And Shloshim is about a year. Of course you feel bad, and man, you can't beat yourself up. She was beautiful. She got taken. It wasn't your fault, right? And, and, and you say it's time, it's time to move on. So what does Mordechai do? But Abel doesn't, doesn't end when the person's alive. Like the thing. So what's interesting, actually, right? That's true. Um, when the person's still alive, the Abel doesn't end, right? And here Mordechai's tormented by that kind of Abel. So this never-ending Abel. So look at the next verse. Next verse tells us something fascinating. It's really, in a way, the first miracle of Purim. But he It turns out that Hegai, who's the head of the harem, Hegai is charmed by Esther, takes a liking to her. And now if you put two and two together, what just happens? Just after Hegai takes a liking to her, and with Mordechai pacing outside those gates of the harem, outside the barbed wire, now you hear, he goes and he hurriedly gives her her perfumes, which is kind of strange if you think about it, because earlier with the perfumes, everybody was supposed to get perfume. In the language of the Natom, everybody just gets their perfume. So why the word Vayibahel? Vayibahel means to hurriedly, to furtively give, right? As if, like, here, take this perfume fast, right? Like, why am I doing that? Why can't I just give you your perfume? The answer is, a guy is not just giving her perfume. What else is he giving her? Vayibahel et tamrukeha. The et manotel. He's also giving her something else. He's giving her manot. Right? And there's this faint wave of contraband over those manot. Right? He wasn't supposed to give her the manot. The proof is that every maiden got seven handmaidens. That were supposed to be given to her the but there's manoteha latekla and sheva hanarot haruuyot latekla. By implication, what does that tell you about the manot? They were not ruuyot latekla. He was just giving her something that shouldn't have been given her. Something seemingly that was given by each. If you put two and two together, it seems like Mordecai, hanging out outside those palace gates, managed to make contact eventually with Hegai. He died like Esther, and at that moment, he can't get her out of the harem, but he can send her something. And he sends her manot. He sends her these little chocolate cookies, these little packages. And now Yosef, Mordechai's friend, gets word of this that nine months in, Mordechai still hasn't gone back to work, who's still pacing outside the palace gates, managed one day to send chocolate cookies to Esther and Yosef, what do you think of this? I don't know. Where's my batch? What? Where's my batch? Where's your batch? <laughs> if Yosef is worried about Mordecai, right, what might he say to Mordecai? Mordecai. Mordecai. What are you doing? You think your little chocolate chip cookies are going to help anything? Well, you think you're going to be the hero? You're going to get him out of the palace? What with this little package you sent her? You know, you're not doing anybody any good. You're just prolonging the agony for yourself. You're staying attached to her. You just got to let go. She's got to let go. 
She's got a whole life ahead of her in the palace. And all you are is making it worse. Just go home, right? But that wasn't Mordechai. Mordechai sent those manos. Why? <coughs> Why do you? To make her feel at home. If you were Esther, and you unwrap those perfumes, and every night you've been crying yourself to sleep in the harem, because you're just this beauty object and nobody cares, and you unwrap those perfumes, and one day when you unwrap the perfumes, you notice there's a little package inside, and you unwrap the package, and there's chocolate chip cookies, and you realize it's from Mordecai. What do you do the minute you see those chocolate chip cookies? It's the best thing in the world. In the first moment, what do you feel? Sinful. That's the place. That's the first moment that yoga <coughs> turns to sinful for one person. Not for a whole nation, just for one person. The minute she opens her chakra. And it's true. Her destiny isn't changed. Nothing really changed for her. She's still stuck in the air. But still, that was an act of love. Somebody actually cares about me. And that changes everything. That gives me this hope, even though it's irrational. Yeah. And it's well known. I mean, they have elephants to, from, you know, Jewish prisoners. And you think about Rubashkin, and, you know, it really does make a difference, even small things. I'll tell you a story. Wasn't planning on telling you a story. I'll tell you real fast. I was just actually in South Africa. I went from. Uh, from Jerusalem to South Africa, and my travel agent, God bless his soul, so thought it would be a good idea for us to travel via Frankfurt. If you know where Frankfurt is, that's five hours in the other direction. So here I am, I'm on a Lufthansa flight from Tel Aviv to Frankfurt, and I haven't been on Lufthansa much before, it's a full flight, and my family is like up at the beginning of the plane, and they move down and switch chairs to me and switch chairs to the person next to me. It's kind of moving their luggage around and as I begin to move somebody's luggage around out of the overhead containers, this guy in the back row stands up and says, that's my backpack. And it's like, don't touch my backpack. And it's like this confrontation of 10,000 feet and I said, I'm not really touching your backpack. I'm just moving around the stuff over here. He had this watchful eye in the backpack. I want to make sure nothing happens to him. He sat down right next to me, you know, right across from me. And I sat down in the aisle seat across from him, and I'm thinking of who comes on the way to Frankfurt. <laughs> and this guy, like 70 years ago, he's the concentration camp guard, right? And I, and <laughs> he's watching me, and I'm the Jew, the sacrificial Jew. And I'm thinking like he was this German, and, he, and I've got all these fantasies going on in my head. But then, like about 20 minutes later, you know what, I'm stuck for the next five hours with the guy next to me. Somebody doesn't make friends with him. So I'm trying to make friends with him. Start a conversation. So I start a conversation. I ask, hey, how are you doing? Because I hate flies. <laughs> so I said, really? He goes, yeah, at least back here. I don't mind much up there. Any motion to the cockpit. So I said, oh, are you a pilot? He goes, yeah. I said, commercial? He goes, no, mostly military. I'm going to go, okay, the loop stop. So then I said, so uh, what kind of aircraft would you fly? 
you got C130s. Tell me how much C130s are. C130s are Hercules transport fights. Uh, they're larger than 747. They take like armored personnel carriers, just huge things for propeller planes. So C130s. C130s were an Entebbe because I was an Entebbe. So this is one of the pilots of Entebbe, right? One of the four pilots who flew C-130 transport planes. He was his was the last plane off the tarmac in Entebbe. So I introduced my daughter to him, and we had this nice conversation. And it turned out the Israeli Air Force pilot, right? So that's completely wrong, right? Not German, right? Totally off base. So uh, we talked about Entebbe. He had lots of fascinating things about it to say about it. And he said there were no heroes in Entebbe. So we knew there were no heroes in Entebbe. He said it was a very simple military operation. It was just the team was heroic because nothing went wrong, and if anything had gone wrong, it would have fallen apart. But it was it was all easy. So I said, one second, what do you mean it was all easy? Like you guys had to fly under the radar. Like, you know, how low was under the radar? So he goes, Yeah, we were flying over the ocean. So I said, Yeah, but right? So you go, about hundred feet over the water. A little less than hundred feet over the water. You know what it is to fly a thousand feet at a hundred feet, a thousand miles at hundred feet over the Red Sea. Right, in a 747 with propellers, right, at night. Anyway, so that's not hard. Because no, the planes were designed to do that. Anyway, so I'm talking to this guy, and he says, you want to know what a hero is? I'll tell you what a hero is. So he says, I'm on my way to Frankfurt. You know why I'm going to Frankfurt? I'm going to Frankfurt because my, I'm going to visit my aunt, the woman who married my uncle. I was very close to my uncle. My uncle made it through Auschwitz four years and survived. Great sense of humor, wonderful guy. He says that he and his sister were living in Germany at the time. He got taken into Auschwitz. And his mother, which is the pilot's grandmother, um, was with them. And he says there was this weird story that they had heard about his grandmother. And no one quite knew exactly what was happening with the story, but what they had heard was that in 1941, she left Berlin by train and traveled through Eastern Europe and arrived in Turkey and from there got on another train with her daughter and arrived in Palestine. And I said that's really strange because in 1941, I didn't know that anyone could get out by train. You couldn't really get out of Berlin by train. So he said, yeah, but that's not the weirdest part. The weirdest part is what happened next. He dropped her off at an orphanage in Israel, in Palestine. And then she took a train back to Berlin, where she was for the rest of the war. And she survived the war. So I said, that doesn't make any sense. Why would she take a train back to Berlin? He said, that's what we didn't know. And we always asked her that question. And she would never answer the question. She would never tell us what really happened. But then, after she died, my uncle told me the truth about what really happened. So I said, so what happened? So he said that in years before the war, she'd been divorced, and she was raising these two kids as a single mother in the 20s and then in the 30s. And in the 30s, she became a mistress to a German officer, a general, in the German army, in the Wehrmacht, a Nazi general. And he was the one who arranged in 1941 for her to leave, taking her child, her daughter, and safeguard 
and be able to get safe passage out of Berlin by train, and which she eventually made to Israel. So that's amazing. Why did she go back? She went back, he said, because she still had one more child there. She had a child in Auschwitz. And she thought that if she went back, this German general would be able to help him get out. So what happened, I said? So she went back, and she rejoined this German general. And this general tried to get her son out of Auschwitz, but couldn't. But what he was able to do was he was able to send letters between her and the son. She was able to facilitate communication between them. And that made all the difference in the world. The end of the story, he said, was that the son survived. She survived. How did she survive? Nothing. The end of the war, a few months before Berlin invaded, Berlin was invaded by Russian troops. It was clear that the war was lost. And the German general, at this point, again, put her on a train to save her life and got her out of Berlin. And she left. And she again got to Palestine by train. And the Russian troops closed in. And in the battle, the German general was killed. And she survived. So he said, you know, that was my grandmother. You want to know about heroes? That was the hero. That was his take on it. But the fascinating piece of that, as far as this goes, that was Mishloch's mother, right? You can't get the person out of the harem. You can't get the person out of Auschwitz. But you can't facilitate communication. That communication means everything. Yeah? What happened to the son? It's another story. Ask me afterwards, and I'll tell you that. Okay, back to the Megillah. Look at the next verse. The next verse is very strange. Here's more how you finally sent Mishloch Mara to Esther. Next verse, Lo hi gida Esther, et amavet moladata, ki morahai sifa alea asher lotani. She didn't tell where she was from because Mordechai told her not to tell. What's off about this verse? What's strange about this verse? In light of everything she said. It should be that he told her not to say and she didn't say. Okay, but even so, what would be strange about this? Think about the placement of this verse. What's odd about this? She was already taken, so how did she tell her? She was already taken. She's in the palace. She's in the harem. How does he tell her? He doesn't have easy communication to her. How does he tell her this? What, he told her before? Before he didn't know she was going to be taken. He wouldn't have told her. And before, and even if he told her before, so say it before. Why are you telling me now? Telling me this now sounds like he told her now, but he doesn't have a way of telling her now. Add it all up. What do you conclude? There was a note in the cookies. There was a note in the cookies. <laughs> it's the only possibility. Inside the perfume, when you unwrap the perfume, there were chocolate chip cookies. And when you unwrap the chocolate chip cookies, there was a note. And this is what the note said. The note said, you know, you don't have to tell everybody you're a Jew. And now you have to ask yourself, why didn't Mordecai send that note? It's not for the reason we usually think. One of the mistakes we make when we read Megillah is we project our knowledge of what happens in the future onto the events at this stage. But realize, at this stage, Mordecai and Esther don't know several things. They do not know that Esther will be chosen queen. At this point, she has a 1 in 10,000 chance of being chosen queen. And they do not know that Haman will ever rise in the king's court and will become this great purveyor of anti-Semitism. None of that is known. So now I ask you, why did he tell her that? 
Why did he say you don't have to tell everybody she's a Jew? It's not so that she can be the hidden Jew in the palace. That's what ended up happening, but that's not why he told her. There was no great anti-Semitic threat to be guarded against. There was virtually no chance she would be queen. So why did he tell her that? Yeah, but like when people are in prison, you also tell them, you know, don't start up with the other inmates. You know, it could be really bad. They can have clicks, they got a bullying. Right, like it that. sounds something like that, right? It sounds like Mordecai is sort of coming to grips with the fact that, look, this is the rest of her life. She's going to be there. You know, when you send a kid off to college from the University of Wisconsin and there's no hill, right? What are the chances they're from five years later, or 10 years later, or 15 years later, without any support or any connection, <laughs> when you're the only one? That doesn't really happen. Who's Esther going to be? And it's like, what? She's going to feel so guilty because she's trying to order Badat's meat, you know, in the first year to make Mordecai happy. And it's almost like, look, you know, you don't have to be such a hero. You don't have to tell everybody. In a way, it's this very painful story of a man saying goodbye to his daughter, in a way. Right? And and if you think about it, it, it's particularly poignant. If you think about a man's relationship with his daughter or with any child, there's really two reasons why a child should listen to a parent. Right? Think about it. Why would you listen to your parent? Your parent tells you something. Why listen? Two reasons. A, respect. Respect. Authority. Right? You're my parent. They can command me to listen. What's the other reason I might listen? Love me. When Mordecai sends the chocolate chip cookies, is that a token of love or authority? Love. But now, in the note, she opens up the note, and the note contains a command. A command means I'm trading on authority now. And what is he saying with this authority? Normally, sometimes with authority, you demand allegiance. With Mordecai, you're opening yourself to the possibility of no allegiance. It's like, I don't know if I can ask you even how long I can ask you to remain a Jew. You don't even ask me. You don't tell me. Right? And it's like and it's like what he's saying is almost like letting go without saying it. It reminds me, and this is speculative, but it feels to me similar in a way to Rivka's interaction with Yaakov in the aftermath of the deception of Yitzhak. Asaph wants to kill Yaakov, along comes Rivka and says, Hey, you gotta run away. But don't worry about a thing, kiddo. Just go to my brother, Yamim Achadim. You'll just be there for a few days in Laban's house, so don't worry, Shalatim Malachatim As soon as your brother Asaph cools down, you just have to go until he cools down. Once he cools down, I promise I'm going to send for you. It's all going to be okay. Just Yamim Achadim, just go for a few days. How long did he go for? 21 years. And she never sent for him. Why? Why did she, didn't she love him? Why didn't she send for him? It was 21 years. The answer is, she said, I'll send for you when it's safe, when Asa forgets. So why didn't she send for him? Because it was never safe. Because Asa never forgot. Now, if it was never safe and Asa never forgot, back when she said, just go for a few days, do you think she thought it was going to be a few days? Probably not. If she didn't think it was going to be a few days, why did she lie? It would be very depressing to, uh, to tell me you're gone. So what else are you going to do? How else do you say goodbye to your son, perhaps forever? Right? 
So it's like, and it's the Holocaust stories, right? It's like, just run over there, little child, and go play with the Christian kids in the courtyard, and mommy will send for you, but it's safe, I'm just gonna get on the train, right? What else are you gonna say? That's what you said. And that's what Mordecai says. You know, you don't have to tell everybody you're such a Jew. This is one of those parting moments, perhaps forever. But then something strange happens. It says over here in this verse, Lo hikida Esther that Esther didn't tell anybody about her birthplace and where she was from. Why? Because Mordechai told her that she wasn't supposed to tell. But then, if you look carefully, you will find, let me see if I can find it, right over here, nine verses later, it says it again. Ain Esther Magedat Moladatavet Ama. Esther did not tell anybody who she was and where she came from. Kasher Tzivalea Mordechai. Just as Mordechai commanded. Why would the Megillah do that? Nine verses of Aaron Sorkin has a principle that you never, the greatest sin in screenwriting is to tell the audience something they already know. You already know this. Why are you being told it again, nine verses later? She's a queen already, right? The answer is something changed. And that changes everything. In the interim, what happened? The one in a million possibility happened. That which Mordecai could not have anticipated. That which Esther could not have anticipated. She becomes the one in 10,000 queen. And now, it says, Esther still didn't tell. Just like Mordecai commanded. But she still doesn't have that note. Because it's like if you're crying every night when you go to sleep, and how do you console yourself if you're after? You look at those last crumbs of the chocolate chip cookies, and you look at the note, and you pledge allegiance to do what the note said. But there's only one problem. That's Esther's way of Esther pure allegiance to that note. This is what Mordecai told me. This is what Mordecai told me. The problem is, was that what Mordecai meant? When Mordecai said it the first time, what did he mean when he said, you don't have to tell everybody you're Jewish? Why did he say it? You're going to be a girl in the harem. You should make life easier for yourself. You don't have to advertise you're Jewish. Don't worry, you can light candles in the basement. Right? That's what it means. He never meant that in a one in a million chance that you get chosen queen, you should deceive the king about who you are. Right? That wasn't part of the plan, but that's what she does. Because she's just looking at the note. Because that's what she's doing. And if you think about it, it's crazy because what she's doing is very dangerous. Right? And if you think about it, it didn't have to end as well as it ended. Right? Imagine the king dating Esther at date number two. And it's like, so where are you from? I mean, that's a normal thing to ask, right? So where are you from? And it's like, she giggles. Right? <laughs> it doesn't answer the question. Like, how long is that going to outlast? Date number four. Your accent. So exotic. Uh, Middle East somewhere, perhaps. Right? And it's like, uh, King, let's not talk about the past. Let's just talk about our future together. 
I mean, what are you going to say? How do you keep on doing this? You're deceiving the beauty and your head chopped off this way. But this is what she does. She looks at that note. She never tells. It's not even a normalized head, but this is what she's doing. Which all sets up the next one. Act two. This, what we've just seen, I want to argue, is Mishloach Manah, Isha Re'ed, earlier than you thought. Now the question is, what is Matanotra again? I want to suggest the very next word. Genocide is decreed, and all of a sudden, the very next word is not about Mordecai sending something to Esther. It's about Esther sending something to Mordecai. What does she send? She sent some clothes. Could that be the hidden instance of Matanotla Yonim? There's a problem with that theory. What's the problem with that theory? That's true. What else is problematic? What if someone came and told me, you know, the very first Matanotla Yonim was when Esther sent those clothes to Mordecai. Mordecai's wearing sackcloth and ashes, and she sends those clothes over to Those weren't Matanot Lavyamin. He wasn't an onion. Why was he wearing those clothes? He was in mourning. What? What was Matanot Yeah, okay, but now let me ask you a question. Did Esther know he was in mourning? Let me ask you another question. Isn't it a little weird that Esther knew that he was in mourning, that she would have sent those clothes? Imagine you go to a Shiva house. Ever been to a Shiva house? How socially awkward would this be? You go to a Shiva house, and it's like the mourner is crying, he's really upset, right? And, and you're over there, right? And it's like, you can't stop looking at the guy's lapel. Like, oh man, you really look like a mess. Yeah. And then he just can't stop. So it's like you interrupt the guy who's crying and tell you these stories about his kids. Your lapel's torn. I have some clothes in the car. And I have a nice set of clean. Can I get you some clothes? And you can just go into the bathroom. I'm going to get you some clothes. Just go into the bathroom and change. Do me a favor. No one does that in the shiva house. You don't do that, right? Because the person wearing the clothes wants to wear the torn clothes. I don't. Why would Esther do that? Why would she send him clothes if she knew he was novel? The answer is she doesn't know. How do you know she doesn't know? Because Mordecai later on, later on in the story, actually sends word to Esther about the genocidal decree, including a copy of the decree, which suggests that she didn't know before. Why didn't she know? The text actually tells you why she didn't know. Let's look at the beginning of chapter 4. Actually, the end of chapter 3. The genocidal decree is given out, and the king and Haman they sit down to drink. Look at that contrast. The contrast between what's happening in the palace and the contrast between what's happening in the street. What's happening in the palace? Parties. 
This is right after the king has decreed genocide. He decreed genocide before lunch, without even knowing the identity of the nation. Yes, no, I'm not talking to Zaman Barbin. He doesn't even know who he's killing, right? But it's like whatever. Just take the ring. I'm late for lunch. It's just this casual aggression. Of course, that's not the way it feels to the victims. For us, we're horrified. But in the palace, it's just another day in the palace. It's the king and Haman sit down to drink. Now, if you think about it, where was Esther? In the palace. You see, Mordecai's in the street, but Esther's in the palace. She's not keeping track of every little decree coming out from the palace. It's parties in the palace. You wouldn't even know, which is actually what you get in the very next sentence. You look at the very next sentence, the beginning of chapter 4. And Mordechai knew everything that happened. So he, he ripped his clothes. And he puts on sackcloth and ashes. And he goes out into the city and he lets out this great and bitter cry. Now let's apply the Aaron Sorkin principle here. Never tell an audience something they already know. Which clause could you cut out of this verse without losing anything for the meaning? You already know that horsemen went out telling people far and wide about the decree. You already know that the city of Shushan is horrified. And now you learn that Mordecai ripped his clothes and then he let out this great and bitter cry and then everybody's mourning. What clause don't you need? Why don't you hear that? If that wasn't there, you'd think he wouldn't know? Of course he knew. Why was he ripping his clothes? You'd figure it out. Why does that have to say, Mordechai Yadat Asher Answer is, how do you read it? Mordechai Yadat Asher Now what's it say? Someone didn't know. Mordechai did. But somebody didn't know. The girl in the palace doesn't know. So now, what's your challenge if you're Mordechai? What do you got to do? Tell us that now. Now, all of a sudden, the girl who you told not to worry about her Judaism so much because, like, whatever, you're in the palace for the rest of your life, she now actually has to start worrying about her Judaism a lot, right? And now there's this moment where she's actually the ace in the hole, and you've got to get word to her because she doesn't even know what happened, right? But there's a problem if you think about it. Problem number one. Let's tell me your problems if you're mortified. You're mortified, you realize maybe Esther can save us. What are your problems? What? Problem number one, how do I get words there? Right? Problem number two, I don't even know how connected she is years later. I know I'm the one who told her, whatever, you don't have to be such a hero. I don't even know, she's, she's spending all the time in the palace. I don't even know how connected she is to Judaism, to her people, right? So these are my two problems. A, how would I even tell her? B, I don't even know how connected the Jews to her Judaism. There's actually a third problem you have if you're mortified that you don't even know you have, which is a real problem. What's the problem Mordecai actually has, which is a big problem, so Mordecai doesn't even know that he has? That she didn't tell the king. He doesn't know she didn't tell the king. So in Mordecai's view, to understand, it's so much simpler than it actually is. Mordecai thinks he's only got the first two problems to deal with. What are my problems? I don't know how to get word to her, and I don't really know how much of a Jew she is, but if I can somehow inspire her, and if I can somehow get word to her, at that point it's a slam dunk, right? 
because he doesn't realize that she never told the king. And that makes such a huge difference, right? Let me just explain to you how it makes such a huge difference. Let's say that things were the way Mordecai thought they were. In other words, let's say she actually had told the king, right? How does that change the equation? If you could actually get word to Esther, and if Esther would care, it's a pretty easy deal then, right? All you have to do is this. It's like, we play it out. I'm Esther. I go to the king. Uh, excuse me, sire. Just want to let you know about the disturbing fact I learned this morning. Okay? Um, do you remember on like date number four, you were talking to me about my accent, and you thought it was so exotic how I came from Palestine, and we talked about the whole Jewish thing, and you thought, oh wow, I never really met a Jew before, but a Jew like you, and I'm totally into that. Remember that? Right? And, okay, so here's the thing, because I just see this decree that got passed, and it seems like we're all supposed to get killed in this blood-soaked thing. Now, I do not know how this happens. Frankly, I don't even care. I understand mistakes happen in the palace down then. You know, it's just legislation gets passed. Who is even counting? But luckily, we have this counter decree, and all you have to do is sign right over here, and we can forget about the whole thing. No more questions asked. I don't even want to know what happened. Just please sign right here and spare us all. It's as easy as that, right? But think how much more difficult it gets when she didn't tell the king. What's she supposed to do? Um, sire, do you remember on date four when you were asking me about my accent, you thought it was so exotic, and I don't know, but I never, I don't know, I, we just, no one wants to stop talking about that, we talked about something else. And then I know you brought it up again later and we all talked about something else, but there's something I probably should have told you because we're all going to die now, and I, I realize I should have told you. Do you understand how difficult that is? It's like, what's she supposed to do? It's not so easy. So he doesn't even know he has that problem. But he does know he has the first three problems. How does he even tell her? And will she even care? Let's deal with how he even tell her. Maybe how he even tell her simple. After all, he had a Big Time and Terrish episode. In the Big Time and Terrish episode, he managed to get word to her, right? He says, but he reports the account of to the king. So maybe all he has to do is find one of the messengers in the palace and say, excuse me, please deliver this, this to Esther. Just, just tell her everything and tell that word to Esther. Why couldn't he just do that? So you tell me, does the mere fact that he was able to slip word about Big Ben and Teresh through a messenger mean that that's what he can do now? Why did he just go do that? Why did he show up like this? But in sackcloth and ashes, playing charades. Right? Why did he do that? You tell me. Can he do this? What's the problem with doing this? It's dangerous. Well, it wasn't dangerous when he said the big time Paris news to some messenger. Okay? The answer is Big Time and Terrace is easy. Right? Put yourself in the shoes. Actually, of the servant of the king who gets approached by Mordecai to deliver the news. If you are one of the handmaidens of Esther, what is your job? Please read me your job description. You are a lady in waiting of Esther. What's your job? What? Anybody? Take care of Which means look out for the queen's interests. Right? That's all you do. Look out for the queen's interests. So, somebody comes to you with a hot tip 
The king is about to be poisoned. These two guys in the Shomer Asaf, check them out. Should I convey that news up my chain of command? Absolutely. That's in the king's interest. That's in the queen's interest. Okay. Now, what about this? A decree of genocide goes out against the people, and one of the victims screams and says, could you please spare us? Please give this word to the queen. She should go to the king and spare us all. Please just tell her what's your, what should you do if you are one of the handmaidens of the queen. What's in the queen's interest? Don't pay the ball. I mean, obviously victims aren't going to want to get killed, right? That's not in the queen's interest to know. So you don't tell anyone, and you shoot the messenger. Or you shoot Mordechai, you kill him. It's a very dangerous thing. You can't do that. So how do you get word to Mordechai? Back to problem number one. It's not an easy thing. So Mordechai decides his only chance is to play charades. So what does he do? All the Jews are in mourning in Shushan. What does Mordechai do? He doesn't mourn in Shushan. He mourns right in front of the palace gates. Not so, doesn't get inside the palace gates, but right in front of the palace gates. So here he is, right outside the wrought iron gates at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, right? And everyone else is going into the palace in freaky suits and, and evening gowns, but he, he's in rags. He doesn't fit. And, lo and behold, people make notice of him. The ladies in waiting to the queen, what do they do? They go and say, they say, What do they say? They say, oh, there's this guy Mordecai who used to know anything. He looks really bad. He just doesn't look right. And Esther goes up, looks out the window, and there is Mordecai, and he does not look right. What does she think? Now, ask yourself, what does Esther know? Nothing. Esther doesn't even know that the Jews are mourning off in Shushan. She just sees one guy in sackcloth and ashes right in front of the gate, this guy Mordecai she used to know. So if you're Esther, what's the first thought that crosses your mind? He's poor. He lost all his money. He's poor. Never. The guy's a beggar now. He invested with Madoff. The, the stock market in Persia crashed. It's terrible. Poor Mordecai, right? She thinks he's an... She's sending Matanos Le'Evione. The only thing is, she's wrong. She doesn't know who he really is. Which leads to a very interesting halacha, doesn't it? The halacha is that just on Purim, not during the year, but just on Purim, when you give Matanos Le'Evione, you aren't supposed to check too carefully whether the guy who looks like an Evione is really an Evione. You give them as long as they look like an Evian. Why? Why should you all of a sudden be irrational with your sucker money? Unless maybe you're mimicking the very first act of Matamadosia, where despite his appearances, Mordecai was not really an Evian. So she sends these Matamadosia. And now, if you are Mordecai, the palace gates open up. Out comes the messenger with these new clothes. You have a decision to make. Should you put them on, or should you take them and throw them in the nearest house? It's not an easy decision. Let me pull you guys. And you need to vote, so nobody can abstain, right? I'm going to ask you to vote these two sides. How many of you would 
take the clothes and throw them in the nearest dumpster. How many of you would put on the clothes? About half and half. Let me hear from somebody in the back row in the green who said I would put on the clothes. Why would you put on the clothes? What? You don't want to insult the clean. What's the danger in throwing the clothes in the dumpster, young lady in green? The clean's going to kill me. Like, all I need is for her to get mad at me and say, it's like, huh, oh, too proud to accept help from Mordecai? The heck with you. And she closes the shutters, and that's the end of the scene. It's very dangerous to throw those clothes in the dumpster. But the problem is, if you put on the clothes, what are you saying? Everything's okay. Everything's okay. I was a nebula. Thank you so much for the clothes. That was so sweet of you. And then we all die. You have to throw the clothes in the dumpster. It's your only shot. So that's what he does. As risky as it is. He is risking offending the queen. The next thing that happens is the second great miracle of work. Esther, instead of getting offended, instructs Hatat, one of her servants, to go out to Mordecai, the queen realizes that she doesn't know what's going on. She figures out that Mordecai is not an enemy, but she doesn't know what's happening. I know enough to know that I don't know. Hata, what's going on? You figure it out, which was exactly what Mordecai was hoping for. This moment is when Esther reciprocates the chocolate chip cookies. The chocolate chip cookies was a gift of faith. It said, as the word omen implies, that I stand by you. Esther looks at Mordecai, and when he throws those clothes in the dumpster, what does she say to herself? That's not the kind of guy that would just disrespect me for no reason. Something else is going on that I don't know. I don't know the story, but I need to find out. He wouldn't just do that. Figure out what's going on. Now that Hatat gets an explicit command, Ladat Mazeba al Mazeb, Mordechai now can tell him, because it's now in the queen's fingers for him to report exactly what happened, because that was the queen's direct command. Mordechai is what? At that point, Mordechai tells her everything. He tells her everything. And he shows her, and he shows via Hatat, the actual copy of the decree, and says we're all going to be killed. So he's solved problem number one. The problem, which is how am I going to get to tell him? The problem is he hasn't yet solved problem number two. Problem number two is I don't know whether she will care. So what does he do? Go back to the two ways. What would you do? Go back to the two ways a father can speak to a daughter. Why should you listen to him? Either love or authority. Which does he choose? Look what he says. He tells her, Kolasher Karahu, He tells her about the decree. He tells her that. And she commands her. And he commands her. 
to go to the king, to beg him, and to beg him for the lives of her people. Now, think about problems two and three for Mordecai. Remember those problems. Problem two was, I don't know whether she cares. What was problem three? The problem he doesn't even know about. She never told the king. Right? Which makes it really awkward. Notice that he doesn't say, it's time for you to reveal who you are to the king. It's like he skips a step. All he says is, I need you to beg for your people. He doesn't say, it's time for you to reveal who you are to the king and beg for your people. Why does he skip that step? Answer, he does not realize that she didn't tell. So he doesn't know. That obstacle, he doesn't even realize is standing in his way. That's the first problem with Martha. He's telling her to do something which she can't really do. He doesn't even realize how difficult it is. The second problem is he commands her. He's choosing authority. He's choosing to command her. What's the problem with commanding her? You can understand why he does it. Right? He's only got one shot. This is my daughter. I'm going to command you to go to the king. This is what you have to do. But what's the danger in issuing this command though? They haven't had a relationship in years. He haven't had a relationship in years. He still doesn't know what kind of Jew she is. So he thinks, all right, so maybe she isn't such a Jew, but she's going to listen to me. I'm going to command her. There's only one problem. Who is she now? She's the queen. Can you really command the queen? Or will the king queen command you right back? This is the danger. Look what happens next. But Tamar Esther Latach. Esther then goes and tells Hatach, But el Mordechai. Fascinating. She issues a command to Mordechai. Mordechai commanded her, I'll command you right back. And Mordechai, you knew everything because you were the guy in the street who knew. Mordechai yadai kolasher nasa. You know stuff I don't know. That might be true, Mordechai, but I know stuff you don't know. You're in the street, and you know stuff from the street. I'm in the palace, and I know stuff in the palace that you don't know. You want to know what I know? Every little person in the palace knows. Every little servant in the palace knows that anybody comes before the king into his inner chamber, that is not called, he will die. You're worried? Kol asher karahu, about everything that befell you? I'm worried, asher lo yikare, a play on karahu. I'm worried that I haven't been called. You're worried about dying? I'm worried about dying. You're worried about a decree that makes you die? I'm worried about a decree that makes you die. We're all fair and square, Mordechai. Everybody's got their problems. You're commanding me, I'm commanding you. Stalemate. Now what do you do? What do you do if you're Mordechai? So I'll tell you what I would do. What I probably would have done in a situation like this is pull out all the stops. Because it's not really fair, is it? I mean, think about it. I said, we're all going to die. She says she's going to die. That's not the same thing as we're all going to die, right? That's not so balanced. So what's your temptation to do right now? What are you going to say to that? 
This is the moment, Esther, that you should be most enough. You dying is not the same as everybody dying. If necessary, you should happily die to save us all. Esther, what's the worst thing that will happen? So, you'll die? All right, so you'll die. I'll name high schools after you. You know, you'll be a hero. You're going to be the one to save us. Esther, we need you. This isn't the moment to think about your life. You know what Mordecai does? Exactly the opposite. You know what he says, sir? You might really stop reaching back to If you keep silent right now, I've got to tell you this one thing, Esther. We'll be fine. We don't need you. You think we need you? We totally do not need you. We'll be totally fine. That's not why you said. We'll be okay one way or the other. What is he telling her? This is crazy. He's doing exactly the opposite of what he should say. It's like, if you don't need me, then I'm not going to act. But what's he really say? It's at this moment that he's grappling with problems two and three. Look what he says. Vayomer Mordechai Lashiv el What word is gone? What verb is gone? He drops the command. Forget commands. This isn't about what I can command you to do. You're right, that was a mistake. I'm retreating from love. The only reason why you should listen to me is love. It's not because of the command. And this is what I tell you in love. And now problem number three. Okay, Esther, I get it. All the reasons you said you don't want to go to the camps, there's one reason you didn't say. That, that sort of leads to it. You didn't tell me, right? You never told me. Okay, I get it. You never told me. So that puts you in a pretty difficult position, doesn't it? But what are your options? Not to say anything? If you don't say anything, what do you think is going to happen? I'll to them even upshake my leg out to follow you. So you think that because you're in this compromised position, that you just shouldn't say anything, that you're going to be the one Jew who's going to hide in the palace and is going to be saved while we're all going to die? You really want to be that person. If you do that, you stand by when you could have protested, you're complicit. And if you do that, you and me, your father's house, we all go down in the fire. You have to act. You have a choice. You can't stand. I understand you want to choose neutrality. There is no neutrality. If you're quiet, then you're in a compass. But here's the thing I need to tell you. You should act. And you know why you should act? Not because I'm commanded. And you shouldn't even act because we need you. Because we actually don't need you. We're actually not going to die. And you're not going to die either. Dying is a red herring. There's one reason why you should act. If you keep silent now, we'll be completely fine. You should act for yourself so that you won't go down in flames. You should act. Who knows who is for this moment to become This is a moment that's significant, not for us. It's actually significant for you. The only difference this moment matters is whether the story of our salvation will be called Megillah Esther or will be called the Megillah of somebody else. This moment is important for you. You shouldn't act because you need to save us. We will be fine. The only reason I tell you in love that you should act is because that's what love demands. 
Because sometimes you have to stand by those you love, even if it's not going to make a difference. Not going to make a difference. We'll be fine. You have to stand up because that's what you do for people that you love and that you're a part of. Someone did that for you. <coughs> Those are the chocolate chip cookies. Why did I send you the chocolate chip cookies? They weren't going to make a difference. If you listen to Yosef, what, they're going to get me out of the harem? They're going to help you. They're not going to help you. So why did I send them? I didn't send the chocolate chip cookies as a means to some sort of end. I sent the chocolate chip cookies as an end in and of itself because the smile that that, that on your face was its own reward. That was the reason why. Because love demands that. And that was the first clip from Yagod the Sintra. And therefore, I'm asking you to do the same. I'm asking you to stand by us in love because that's what love demands. And the rest is history. And that's what she does. And from there on, A story evolves. Oh, with this I'll let you go. The story evolves from here on in. This is the national story of salvation. The personal story over. But in the national story, everything that just happened becomes the template for what's about to happen. Right? Look at what happens next. Here's Mordecai, who didn't take the clothes. Is there a time when someone else dresses him up and he does take the clothes? That's the next story. That's the story of the horse. When Haman dresses him up in those clothes, same language. And isn't it fascinating? Mordecai, who is feeling Abel Gadola Yudim, all of a sudden Haman goes home, Nitzhakel Beto, Abel Vachafui Rosh. Haman now feels like an Abel. And isn't it fascinating that Mordecai, who couldn't go to Sharanala because he's wearing his dad's clothes, after he gets off the horse with the beautiful clothes, like Nasha Mordechai al Sharamela, now he can actually go back directly to the Sharamela because he's wearing the good clothes. And remember how Mordechai, by Yagat Mordechai, told the woman in his life, Kola Shirkarahu, everything that befell him. When else does that happen? When else does a man tell a woman everything that befell him? That's Haman Tazeresh in the next story. By Yisabra Haman Tazeresh, you still the follow of it, Kola Shirkarahu. It's the same story happening again. And then what happens? As they're talking, the eunuchs come. And they hurriedly bring Haman, but that word, you've heard it before, haven't you? That's the second Vayibahel. Where was the first one? The first one was the Haggai. The first one was the Mishloach Mana. Oh, the first one was the Mishloach Mana? The giving of mono quickly. Look at what's happened. Who do they bring? A guy who just happens to be named. Hama. The first time around, the first time around they brought her mono. What's the second thing she gets? The second time around, when Haman. Haman. The man, anyone? It's the mana. Short for mana. One more time, she's getting mana, but this time, I don't know if you guys see movies around here, but you've seen The Silence of the Lamb. You remember the famous last line I'm having an old friend for dinner. And the question is, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, Esther is having an old friend for dinner, right? Instead of mana being the delicacy which she served, the man 
Haman is the delicacy that she served. And finally, remember how so now the queen in the final salvation is going to come and is going to tell the king, I would have been silent. She's remembering what Mordechai said. Mordechai said, you can't keep silent. Why can't you keep silent? You can't keep silent because love demands that you respond. So she says, you know what? If we were sold as slaves, there would be a reason for this genocide. There would be a reason for what's happening. It would be a means to an end, but it's not. It's just hatred. That's all it is. It doesn't make sense. And that's why I'm standing up for it in an act of love. And what does she say? What does the king say? What does me who said? Who remind you of? What did Esther say to Atta? Esther said, Wadat Mazeb Almazen. Now there's a king who wants to know, Mazeb Almazen. He says, Mizehu, Bezehu, and Esther says, Ish Sarvoye, Haman Hara Hazet. So listen to those words. Ish Sarvoye, Haman Hara, Hara. What does Ra, Rach Ayin, remind you of? Raya. Haman, what does Haman remind you of? Mana, what does Ish Sarvoye remind you of? Ish. Oh, it's Mordechai. Mishloach Manav, Ishlareyehu, the final Mishloach Manav, is when Esther turns to Haman and says, he is the opposite, the mirror image of Mishloach Manav. Mishloach Manav were a gift of love, where there was no reason for it. All it was was love incarnate. It wasn't kept somewhere, it was just love. And now there's genocide, and genocide doesn't get anywhere. It's just hatred. Ish, Sarboyeh, Haman, it's not about a friend anymore. It's about Ra. It's not about Manoch anymore. It's about Haman. It's not about Ish, a good man, Mordechai. It's about Ish, Sarbavayeh. He is the opposite of those Mishloch Manoch. And that's why he deserves to be condemned. And Esther wins the day. And therefore, I think when you and I send Mishloch Manoch, maybe we should be thinking about this. As you go through your list, of people who send Mishloch Manoch. And you look at your list and you say, you know, who's not on my list? Who feels yada, hopelessness? Who is there that feels like there's nothing you can do for their life and you know what? There really isn't anything that I can do to change their life. Like Mordecai, couldn't get Esther out of the harem. I can't get that guy out of whatever comes he's in. But I can do one thing. Love can demand of me to do one thing. Not as a means to an end, because this will help him in this kind of way, but just love as an end with itself. Because if I give him these chocolate chip cookies, a smile will cross his face, to her face, and he'll be able that there is somebody out there who cares, who loves me, and connects with that person. And that's an end in of itself. And who knows what goes on there? Maybe that's what Mishloch wanted to do. Maybe that's the first Mishloch. Maybe that was the first moment of love between Mordecai and Esther that the rest of the material is built on. Because with that expression of faith, he's able to come back to her. And she's able to send those clothes. And they're able to have that conversation. And he's able to trade on that and tell her about the, a time when she needs to express that kind of love for her people. It all goes back to the Tropic of The whole national salvation, long before we as a nation switched from young to sinful person 